have this one. The reading, the reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 to 12. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people... But now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thanks, Gary. Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor Brendan. I'm delighted to be bringing the word to you today. And uh, as you know, we're moving through our Exodus series. Um, And now we're in a portion of Exodus, chapters 28 through 31, respectively, four big chapters, um, talking about holiness and about the priesthood. And so Kerry's read us that passage, which talks about the continuation of this idea of priesthood that comes to us. Um, I'm going to read us uh, a small selection out of Exodus 29, uh, verses 28 through four, well, verses uh, 38 through 46, um, just to kind of uh, show us a little bit about what this passage is about. But then we're actually going to go through all four chapters. Um, we're going to go through so fast that if you take notes by hand, you better prepare yourself for a life of carpal tunnel syndrome, <laughs> um, and we'll leave flaming tire streaks across the scriptures as we go. Um, but it's going to be great. So, Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 through 46. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old. One, uh, offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. With the first lamb, offer a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil from pressed olives, and a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Sacrifice the other lamb at twilight with the same grain offering and its drink offering in the morning. A pleasing aroma, a food offering presented to the Lord. For generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet with you, I'll meet you, and I will speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites, and the place will be consecrated by my glory. 
So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am their Lord who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us so that we can comprehend something of you and we can reach out to you and learn more about you. We pray your spirit is in our hearts and that you open, it up, open our hearts up to hear you today and open up the word to our hearts. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, we're continuing this journey through Exodus. Um, only uh, 40 chapters in the whole book together, and now we're looking at four of them. So we're 10% of the thing today. That's pretty good, specifically chapters 28, 29, 30, and 31. There are a few themes for these chapters. They're mostly about Israel's priests, about the holy family of priests, or a dynasty of priests, if you will, and about what needs to be done to make them ready for service, which I know sounds thrilling. Um, and so I've given this sermon a dynamic title, Dynastic Priests and How to Prime Them. <laughs> I knew Steve would get that. All right, let's move to reference. Um, we knew that Israel was set apart from the nations as a holy people, we know that the priests are set apart from the broader nation of Israel as a holy family. We know that the high priest is set apart from even those priests as a kind of a holy representative of them. And taken together, this is a pattern that expresses the idea of um, that shortcomings and failures and sins of the whole um, can, with, with God's explicit blessing, be overcome and, and transferred by the superior holiness of a small part of that group. The, uh, the fluffy theological term for this is vicarious atonement. Atonement, we know, is to resolve a guilt or a debt, to deal with that. Um, and vicarious is to have someone do it on your behalf. It's the principle by which the Israelites are going to live. It's what they're meant to learn and relearn so that they dream of a day when a Messiah will come who will make a once and for all vicarious atonement, which even the high priests across time are incapable of making themselves. Now, normally I like to step through passages like this in detail, go verse by verse, um, but just reading these chapters out would take about 25 minutes. Um, so I'm going to summarize as we go. I encourage you to read them more deeply in your own time as well. But here is the overview. Uh, we remember the last few chapters were about the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, that um, gilded acacia wood box that the, the um, tablets are going to go in that is, um, symbolizes kind of the presence of God among his people. Um, the tent of meeting, where that's going to rest when they are not moving. Uh, the altar of sacrifice, where all these sacrifices are going to be made that are part of the institution of, of the Israelite religion. Um, these chapters continue, the ones we're in now, continue the description of these holy things required for the worship of the God of Israel and also the people who will be instrumental in that worship, the priests and the high priest. Chapter 28 is all about the priestly garments. That's the robes, the turbids, the ephods, the urubs, the thumans, etc., why does that matter? What do three-fifths of those words mean? I'm glad you asked. We'll get there. Chapter 29 is about consecrating priests and performing the rituals that render them holy for God's service. Chapter 30 is about the altar of incense, the census shekels, the wash basins, the oils, the incense, all the, instru the instruments and substances as required as parts of these rituals that are necessary for the things God's going to require them to do and how they're supposed to make those things. Finally, chapter 31 is about the craftspeople who are going to make these things, who God has equipped for that purpose. Um, 
to, to make these holy things that make these priests distinct and sacred, and also about the Sabbath. At the end, they're to remind Israel that they as a nation are made holy by God. They have a set-apart purpose as well, not just the select priests among them. But through that is the idea of holiness, which is to be nailed down at the inception of Israel as a nation. Because remember, this is God taking his people, a group of slaves, out of, his, out of Egypt, bringing them to a holy land where they're going to establish a new nation. And they're defining what they are going to be as that nation. Now God's giving it to them, how they should act to become a nation that pleases him. It's supposed to define their thoughts and their lives. So let's take a look at chapter 28. I will read a selection from the first five whoop, verses. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honor. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I have given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration to serve me as priest. These are the garments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. So this is about these priestly garments. Why do they bother with priestly garments? Why should we bother learning about them now? Well, we're told in the passage they are to bring dignity and honor to the priests and specifically the high priest doing God's work. God wants them to be so visually striking that there can be no mistaking them for being people doing a normal work that is not holy. And if that is what God was aiming for, mission accomplished. Um, if you can see that picture, you will agree that there is no possibility that a gentleman thusly attired will be mistaken for being normal. He's got the sash around the waist there, he's got the robe of blue cloth, Pictured here, it's got a kind of a linen under robe. Um, the hem of the robe down the bottom there, which is probably too fine for you to see here, um, is ringed with alternating gold pomegranates and gold bells. Um, so he'll jingle as he walks. Um, the tunic is heavily embroidered with purple and scarlet and blue and gold, the same colors that are used for the tent of meeting um, in the previous chapter. So just as the presence of God is covered in this kind of pattern in these same colors, so God's people who are servicing the temple are dressed in a similar way. Turban on the head with a golden plate engraved with the words holy to the Lord on it. Um, the ephod is a kind of like a jeweled harness, which you can see there. Um, and the purpose of that ephod is to hold that chest piece. And on that ephod, there are two little gems on the shoulders with the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on them, six on the left, six on the right. And verse 12 says that this is a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord. Rigged to this harness is the item on the left side of this picture here, um, the breast piece. Now, the breast piece is very interesting. It's an embroidered square of cloth in which they have 12 gems set. Each of these is a unique gem from the others. Each of them is inscribed with the names of one of the 12 sons of Israel. It's all very powerful and mysterious. What does it mean? What's it for? Well, there's been a great deal of historical speculation about what those stones specifically are. They have different words in the Hebrew. It's like, this is stone one, this is stone two. We know they're all meant to be distinct. But there's not a lot to go on there. It's like, here is a word that means some kind of precious stone. Is it a, 
emerald? Is it a piece of something else? I don't know. Um, so they kind of guess these things as best they can. Um, there's been speculation about that, about which tribe's name is meant to be on which stone specifically, um, about which order the, son, the uh, sons of Israel were born in, um, as far as setting them apart by months, about whether or not there's a connection between the 12 zodiac symbols and the specific stones that they were born under. Um, lots of speculation. We don't know. I, I have very severe doubts about some of those. Um, I have very severe doubts about some of those, but we don't know much about the arrangement of these stones and specifically what they were going to be like. Other than their unique stones, they're inscribed, inscribed with the names of the tribes of Israel on them. Uh, God has not left us in this day the resources to know many of those details. Although I think we can be extraordinarily skeptical of the idea that there's a zodiac connection. What we do know is that the high priest is bearing the names of Israel on precious gems as part of his uniform, as he's going about his holy work. He's wearing a uniform that also declares him to be holy to the Lord. So who is holy to the Lord? This priest particularly. Who does this priest stand for? Well, he stands for Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Joseph. It's like a built-in reminder for the nation and the priest that they are all, in fact, part of the one people, the one nation. Because remember, all the priests are actually from one tribe, from Levi. But just in case, several generations from here, they run the risk of forgetting that they are holy as representatives of all those people and not just a superior class like the top tribe because they're God's favorite tribe. The priest carries with him the names of the ancestors of every Israelite who he's representing. So there's much about the symbolism in those garments that we just can't discover, but the biggest, the boldest ideas we can get to. But that gemmed breastpiece served a function beyond its symbolic value and um, I never met a biblical mystery I didn't want to chew on for a while. So, verses 29 to 30, whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breast, place, on the breast piece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also, put the Urim and the Thummim in the breast piece so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus, Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions before, um, for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. What's the Urim and the Thummim? Um, we don't know exactly. That's why they're called the Urim and the Thummim and not a translated word that would make sense. Um, we have lots of speculations and inferences on them. That, um, that little im at the end of the word, Urim, Thummim, suggests it's a plural word, maybe, like you have one cherub, two cherubim. It's the way that Hebrew works. But then again, some words use the plural just to make it kind of more majestic sounding, so we can't even be sure of that. The words kind of translate to lights and perfections, or revelation and truths. There's the idea that these were involved to, um, for the, the priest to sort of do some divination before the Lord. God's very clear that he disobey, bans divination. He says, don't do any future seeking, don't do any fortune telling stuff, but he excludes this specific practice and gives it to the high priest. There's an accepted idea that maybe there was like the Urim and the Thummim with these two distinct stones, maybe one black, one white. You put them behind the ephod thing, you need to make a, make a, uh, a decision. They say, high priest, does the Lord want us to attack this Philistine village? Philistine village? And high priest puts his hand and he pulls out, pulls out the black stone and says, nope. God says, no. I suspect it is maybe more complex than that. Um, there's a verse later on in the book of Kings 
if you're interested, where Saul is asking God for help and God's not giving it to him. And the verse says that God is not answering him by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So there has to be some way that they use this that comes up with God's not talking to you, not just yes or no. But what can we know about these mysterious objects? We know that there's some kind of divination device. Um, We know that God is an, an involved God. God wants to talk to his people. He wants to communicate with them. He wants them to be able to communicate with him. He gives them no fear that he will leave them and no excuse for acting against his will. And over the story of Israel's journey, the way that God leads them and communicates changes in some ways. One day the people are going to start demanding to have a king like the other nations. And then God will start sending a prophet to go along with the king as kind of a matched set. And he speaks through his prophet. When that starts to happen, this whole Urim and Thummim thing seems to just sort of fade away. After a while, God will stop sending prophets and he will send his son. And then once his son has done his holy work, he sends his Holy Spirit. Our God is an involved God. He is communicative. He is involved He is separated from his people by their sinfulness, but he does not allow his word, his communication, to be absent from them. That's what we can know about these items. So that's the priestly garments. Now that we have the holy getup, how are we going to get the people holy enough to wear them? That comes in chapter 29. Let's look at verses 4 to 9. Then... Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Take the garments and dress Aaron with the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod itself, and the breastpiece. Fasten the ephod on him by its skillfully woven waistband. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred emblem to the turban. Take the anointing oil and anoint him by pouring it on his head. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics and fasten caps on them. Then tie sashes on Aaron and his sons. The priesthood is theirs by a lasting ordinance. Then you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So this chapter is about consecrating these priests, making them sacred and holy for this work. And this is where God describes how they're going to go about that. To make these priests holy enough to be servants of a holy God, and not just the the priests, but also the altar that will be used for all these sacrifices. That's what the passage that I read out at the start was about. When it says make these two sacrifices every day, that's a week-long period where they are consecrating the altar that they're going to make sacrifices on. Even though that altar needs to be made holy. And through these chapters, in fact, we find that the priests need to be made holy, the altar needs to be made holy, the tent of meeting, which is supposed to house the presence of God, where they meet God, is to need to be made holy. The lampstands and all those burners and things need to be made holy, the golden tools, the Ark of the Covenant needs to be made holy. That's all kind of strange. um, Because as good Christians, we tend to think of holiness and cleansing and making holy as an arrangement about washing away sin. But stones and wooden boxes can't sin. Right? Like, I I have never been offended by the sins of a stone box. Um, So what's the point of this? What is making these things holy? Because God's not threatened by objects or people for that matter. So we might assume that these tools and tents and altars need to be made holy for our benefit rather than God's. And let me suggest to you that this is God 
doing more of what he's been doing this whole sequence of chapters, laying the foundation for the way he wants his people to think and live going into generations in the future. The phrase, for generations to come, happens like six times over these chapters. Because imagine 500 years later, after this is instituted, and it's the great, great, great times 30 grandkids of that generation bringing sacrifices to the altar. For all their lives, they come to this altar to have their sins taken away. So did their parents and their parents' parents. They bring a sacrifice, the priest sacrifices it, then they walk away with the assurance they have been cleansed of their sin. There's some danger there that the people will start thinking that this altar is where the power lies. Right, that it's a kind of a magic altar, it has mystical power in it. The religion might very easily be about the things rather than the God behind the things. And that's the reason that some churches, Baptist churches particularly, have historically shied away from building giant glass cathedrals or wrapping golden molding or a golden leaf around crown molding or having crown molding at all. Um, shying away from those things because we don't want the image of the church as a special holy place to get in the way of people meeting the holy God. And there are lots of people, lots of Australians particularly, who are genuinely, physically anxious about the idea of going to a church. Not because they hate God or because they uh, don't like nice people or free cake, um, but because they have the idea of the church in their head as a kind of a holy ground and they don't want to go to that place. You might have met this kind of person. You might invite them to church, and they're the kind of person who jokes, oh, if I went to church, I'd be afraid I'd get struck by lightning. (laughs) They laugh because they don't really mean it, but they also kind of mean it. Like, they are are genuinely a little bit anxious about that idea, and it's it's sad because the God that they are avoiding is all-knowing and all-seeing, and if they're afraid that God's got a lightning bolt with their name on it, and brother, there is nowhere that you can go that you can escape from his lightning bolts. And so when God requires that, this, he requires that this holy altar and the holy places and the holy instruments and all these things need to be made holy, kind of maintenanced to be made holy, and he makes it as clear as possible in this that holiness comes from somewhere other than these specific items. It comes from him and from nowhere else. Only he can invest holiness in places, in people, in items. And they are only holy because and as long as he does so. So chapter 9 asks that the priests be anointed with sacred oil. And we'll look at that sacred oil in chapter 30. Um, And that there are three kinds of sacrifices made as part of this consecration for the priests. There's a sin offering, there's a burnt offering, and there's a, a fellowship offering, sometimes called an ordination offering here. Fellowship offering. And I hope to spend some time talking about the specifics of those offerings, why it's interesting and important to know the difference. Um... I will do that hopefully in a sermon series later on, but for now, here's the short version. Sin offerings are a picture of sin, of how severe it is and how absolutely God treats it. A sin offering goes like this. They sacrifice a bull, they take out the kidneys, the liver, the most fatty, nourishing, best parts of the beast, the high-value parts. They burn those on the altar to God. The rest of the body... The flesh, the the whole carcass, they haul out from the tent, out of the camp, out to the dusty, useless wilderness, and they immolate it and they burn it in the desert, far away from the presence of God. A few choice parts are burned on the altar. Smoke goes up from heaven um, from this sacred place. Everything beneath that level of perfection, that 
that little redeemable part of the creature is taken and burned far away from the presence of God. When you look at it like that, it's actually a kind of a heavy-handed symbol. Um, it's like, God, take, what is, take whatever is good in me, that little bit, and forsake in me anything else that, is, that falls short of the glory of you. Take anything in me that is sinful, and I, I disavow it, take it away from me. Get it away. That's the first kind of offering. That's the sin offering. Second offering is a burnt offering. They sacrifice a ram. They chop it up. They wash it. They burn the entire thing, the whole ram, on the altar at the, at the tent of meeting or temple later on. They use the phrase here that it's a pleasing aroma, uh, a food offering pleasant to the Lord. Right? They use this. There's something positive about this. The sin offering, they don't use that language because that's, that's a very negative thing. The sin offering is a grim business. It's about offloading sin. Burnt offering is like, here's a gift. You know, this is me bringing what is good. Um, it's about total submission. The whole burnt offering is given to God. It's washed clean. It's, it's a good thing. God receives it positively. It's a pleasing aroma to him. It kind of opens the door to that renewed relationship. Sin is cleansed, whole offering given. And then the fellowship offering comes. And that's different again. Because they sacrifice a ram. Part of it is burnt on the altar to God. And they keep part of it to eat themselves. Now they're having a meal with God. Sin's removed, relationship restored. Now you're dining with God. You're at that level of familiarity, of relationship, of fellowship, as the offering is called. So it's a sign of peace there. So that's chapter 29. The altar and the tent of meeting are made holy. Then the priests are given their special garments. They're anointed with oil. Um, they make their offerings to God to submit their sin to destruction. They dedicate themselves to him wholly. Um, holy. Um, and then they enjoy fellowship with him now that they have that holiness restored. On with the chapter 30. 30 is a very practical chapter. Um, it's about the sacred things that they need to make for the business of the priesthood. It's the priestly accoutrements, I've called them there, accoutrements. Uh, it's, a big, it's kind of a big laundry list of items, um, and in the interest of time, we can't parse through those verses deeply, but read that chapter in your own time. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Here's a summary. They had to make another, another altar. This is called the altar of incense. It's a portable altar. Like the ark, it's made of acacia wood. It's wrapped in gold. It's for burning holy incense only, and for that purpose every day. This portable altar, like everything else, must be consecrated with sacrifice. Its holiness comes from God not from just kind of the physical object. The incense itself is a special blend of particular spices suspended in frankincense, a familiar term for us. I can't guess what the original fragrance smelled like, but the passage does say that if anyone recreationally makes something like this, if they make an incense like it just to enjoy it, they are to be cut off from their people. This is a proprietary scent. Okay, this scent is to be associated only with the worship of God. God gives instructions on how to make this, and he wants it to be exclusively for the use of his priests. God gives instructions on how to make the sacred oil that they're going to be doing this anointing with, anointing the priests and their various tools. They use, to make this oil, a variety of spices suspended in liquid myrrh. Now we have gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What an interesting trio. This fragrant oil is used particularly for priests, or specifically for priests, and anyone who makes their own version like it, just to enjoy it, is to be cut off from their people. They also make a bronze wash basin. It's kind of a big 
bronze birdbath-looking arrangement to wash their hands and feet before they do priestly work. The verses warn that failing to wash their hands and feet will cause them to die in the service of God. God is very serious about this. In case we haven't gotten the message yet, God is doing something here that is so sacred and serious that death and exile are the lengths he is willing to go to to impose these practices performed seriously and to be kept through generations. And one more thing in chapter 30. The atonement money. This is interesting. The chapter says, when they take a census, which Moses is going to do later on, this is how they're going to do it. All the men aged 20 or over, that's military aged, in ancient Israel, brings a half shekel of silver. It's a little, yeah, little thing of silver. Um, and gives that to the priests. Rich or poor, no more, no less. Everyone, every fighting-aged male brings a single half shekel of silver. Why? Well, first, it's a very practical way of doing a census. You have everyone walk past and drop in one half shekel, then you just count the shekels, that's how many guys you got. Well, count the shekels, divide by two, I guess. But the second part of this is that it's, the passage is it's a memorial before the Lord, making atonement for their lives. It's about every family in Israel putting something physical and tangible into the foundation of this covenant. Because this silver is going to be used to maintain the priesthood, and also, it's actually a bunch of this silver is going to get melted down to make all the silver hooks and the caps and the, the pieces that are used for the tent of meeting. So everyone contributes to the silver that is used to make the physical objects. So after this sentence, everyone in Israel will have contributed to the structure where they go to meet God. They have some ownership of it in that sense. So, now we're up to chapter 31. We're doing pretty good. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding and knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. So if you've ever had a daydream where you just wish you could just wake up one day and then be just the best guitar player in the world, just have all the skill with none of the work, or to be able to draw amazingly. You see someone else you can draw amazing artworks. You go, oh yeah, I really, I bought a book and pencils a while ago and I just never did that. Well, Bezalel, Bezalel, that's a fun name, son of Uri, has this for real. He actually has this experience. God fills him with supernatural talent and craftsmanship, which is amazing. And an amazing thing to happen to someone whose resume before this probably read 30 years experience making bricks as an Egyptian slave, um, follows instructions well, team player. After this, Moses is going to have to go and ask him, look, I know you've only made mud bricks, um, but if I got you a ton of gold, do you think you could make about 300 golden pomegranates? <laughs> it's hard. Never thought about it before, but I'll give it a crack. Um, and so God empowers this guy and others and a variety of other craftsmen there, who he's sort of leading, um, to make these items, to make the ark, to make the garments, to make the utensils, the oils, the gems, everything. God supplies the perfection that he's requiring in these items by handing out this talent to these craftsmen, which is going to be... It's going to be really funny to the other tribes in the areas, this group of sort of shaggy barbarians who've been wearing the same clothes for 40 years, come rolling through with this really amazing like tent 
of, of embroidery and craftsmanship. <laughs> How'd you guys get, did you steal this? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, <laughs> it's a lot, a lot of it's Egyptian gold, I've got to be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, and finally, there's a reminder uh, about the Sabbath rest. And that comes in verses, um, I'll give you verses 16 and 17 here. Then the Lord says to Moses, oops, is that 16 or 17? That's 12 to 13. Uh-huh. Then the Lord says to Moses, say to the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. At the end of all these things that are for the priests specifically to need to make them holy, the people, the clothes, everything, that specific case of priests, God tells Moses to remind the people that they are to honor the Sabbath because they are holy and set apart too. Just as the priests are set apart from the Jewish people in order to perform these acts that are supposed to bring the whole nation closer to God, the Jewish people are set apart from the nation in these verses so that they can be like priests to the world. The promise that God gave to Abraham was that his children would be blessed and that by them the whole world would be blessed. They were to, make, uh, to be made holy for God's purpose of working through them for the redemption of the world. That's the mission of God's people. And this verse, these verses that Carrie read for us earlier, are about us. They're about you from 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And what an amazing thing it is that Jesus came as the fulfillment of all this Old Testament ritual and practice. He was the lamb that was sacrificed to take away our sin and to restore our fellowship with a God to whom we can give our whole lives and have this fellowship restored in life everlasting. The altar he was sacrificed on happened to be a Roman cross. The priests were Gentile executioners, ignorant of what they were doing. And through all these centuries of troubled faithfulness and failure, God's people Israel, they yielded up a savior that the world needed by God's design. A high priest of all high priests who did not need to be consecrated, who did not need someone to pass to him an external holiness because the holiness came from him. But the work of Jesus didn't end with saving his people. When you're saved by his blood, cleansed by that, you become clean and holy and ready for service as part of this chosen people, a new royal priesthood. And we have holy work to do. We are priests now. Everyone called a Christian is a priest in this new covenant. So then that question must become this. What is left for God's priests today? What are we going to do now that we obviously don't do that kind of sacrifice? The one sacrifice, the big thing that priests did, God did it once and for all with Jesus. So now what are we supposed to be doing? Well, it's in the rest of that 2 Peter verses 11 to 12. Oh, 1 Peter 2 verses 11 to 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, 
They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That's it. To abstain from sin, to live lives so good that people who accuse you of evil will over time have to admit that God has made you holy. And we are living among pagans, secular Australians, various other beliefs now. Our lives are completely interwoven with these people around us. The priests of the Old Covenant were an intimate part of the lives of the Israelites and the festivals and the celebration and the worship. And whenever they, these people encountered a priest, they could tell by the things they wore, by how they looked, by the smell of frankincense and myrrh on their person, by the sound of golden bells everywhere they walked, that this was a holy man. The whole thing is set up so that they are completely distinct and there can be no mistaking it. This guy was devoted to God, and if you needed to know what God was saying to you, you could ask him, and he would know. And God, in his wisdom, doesn't require us now to wear certain ostentatious clothes or perfume or bells. Our lives are supposed to be so moral, so exemplary in their goodness, that we have a visible holiness that's superior to all of that outward appearance that the old priest had. Because even the pagans who don't know God, who don't know what the smells and colored thread that they're supposed to look for in this case, they don't know these things. They should know by looking at you that you are God's woman or God's man. By looking at your life. And if we do that, when we speak the message of the gospel, they will hear it not as a story told to them by some person they know, but as the word of God spoken by his holy people. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the work that you've done that only you could do. You've cleansed your people of sin. You've inspired us to devote our lives to you. You've welcomed us into fellowship. And fellowship with you not only as servants and priests, but as your friends and as your children. Help us to live lives worthy of that calling, Father. And if there is anything in our life that is dishonoring to you, there's a blot on our holiness so that your message is blunted when we bring it to the world, God, we ask for extra conviction. We want to be your sacred people living lives undeniably filled with your blessing. We want the courage to speak your gospel to the world around us and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so that we can live a life that backs it up. We submit to you, Lord, as your people, longing to play our part in your plan, the plan that one day we'll see every people and every nation bow down before our Redeemer King, Jesus Christ. And we ask this blessing in his precious name. Amen.